Welcome to the Five Smooth Stones podcast with Daniel Watts, the director of the EGM Institute. Daniel Watts here with our Five Smooth Stones podcast. These podcasts are focusing on the five qualities of a life-changing children's ministry found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Relationship, experience, truth, discussion, and response. This week, we are in the third of a series looking at Matthew 19, and we're looking at the third group in the story, the disciples. The Gospels are filled with examples of the disciples not getting it, and this ranks right up there near the top. (laughs) As the children were brought to Christ, the disciples attempted to stop them and those who brought them. In fact, the text states that the disciples chose to rebuke the people who brought the children. Matthew uses this same Greek word on five other occasions, including the time Jesus rebuked the winds and calmed the storms in Matthew 8.26. Also, according to Matthew, Peter rebuked Jesus for prophesying his own suffering and death in Matthew 16.22. And the crowd rebuked the blind man for begging for Jesus' attention in Matthew 20, 31. A rebuke is not a gentle warning or an expression of mild concern. Rebuke means to strictly apprise someone, assess a penalty, charge someone as being blamable, hence rebuke, rebuke, reprove, warn, strongly admonish, threaten. (laughs) The disciples' reaction was definitely direct. They were clear that they did not want the little children brought near to Jesus. But the language isn't clear about whether the disciples were rebuking the children or the people bringing the children. Whatever the case, the disciples' reaction was strong and unequivocal. The twelve believed it was a bad idea to bring little children to the master. Why did the disciples regard the children's presence as such a bad idea? What were the disciples thinking? It isn't clear, but we can surmise that it was one or more a combination of the following kinds of reasons. For example, Jesus Christ was a famous teacher and a charismatic leader who was gaining in popularity, someone this important did not spend time with children, even though children were considered members of the religious community in Roman society and certainly in Judaism. In neither culture's history do we read of leaders focusing time or attention on children. It would follow then the disciples did not think spending time with children was a priority for Jesus and his kingdom work. Maybe they thought Jesus was busy and simply didn't have time for children. At this point in his ministry, Jesus was attracting large crowds. In fact, the word crowd or multitude occurs 48 times in Matthew. Apparently, Matthew wanted the reader to not miss that many, many people were interested in Jesus' ministry, drawn to his compelling teaching and intrigued by his miraculous healing powers. And of course, Jesus' time was at a premium. Matthew reported on other occasions, 1246, 20, 29 through 34, when the disciples thought that the people were interrupting what they believed to be Jesus' schedule. 
In each case, Matthew showed that the disciples did not have a clear understanding of Jesus's priorities. Third, Jesus was declaring the dawn of God's kingdom and ministry to children was not a strategic objective. The active reign of God was at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. His repeated talk about God's kingdom resonated with his Jewish audience in very specific and profound ways. To be specific, the disciples likely saw Jesus as a messianic figure akin to King David. As the Messiah, they thought, he would reestablish the monarchy, sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and vanquish the Romans. After all, they reasoned, Jesus had declared that God's kingdom was at hand. Kingdoms have a king, and Jesus was that. For the disciples in the Jewish community, this statement meant the imminent end of the Roman occupation. That ex- expectation wasn't some theological idea, but instead, to quote, quote N.T. Wright, was intimately bound up with the social and political hopes of the people. The disciples naturally thought that Jesus' political and social goals would not be realized by focusing on toddlers. In plain English, wasting time with two-year-olds, toddlers would not facilitate Jesus achieving his kingdom goals. Or another reason maybe they thought that way, was that Jesus would bring in the kingdom by engaging the male-only power brokers of society, the men who are the religious leaders, political leaders, and people of influence. Throughout human history, power has fueled the rise and fall of kingdoms. So words about the dawn of a kingdom would naturally conjure up ideas of power struggles, political conflict, or even warfare. After all, the Roman Empire did not gain its place in the world through prayer or fraternizing with infants and toddlers, but through military strength and its well-trained legions. Similarly, the Greek Empire was led by Alexander the Great, a young general skilled in the exercise of military power. Julius Caesar, Hannibal, King David, Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, other historic rulers were in general military leaders who brought their kingdoms by the skillful and courageous use of power. Not a single one of them was known for his focus on children, much less on infants and toddlers. The disciples expected Jesus to act in the same manner as these powerful, victorious leaders of the past. In fact, the disciples were eager to get Jesus to Jerusalem where he could confront the occupying Roman forces. They'd seen Jesus demonstrate his control over nature itself. So surely he would confront the evil of Rome by destroying the Romans. Of course, such a revolution is never facilitated by reaching out to infants and toddlers, they thought. Although Jesus' response to the disciples' action is absent in Matthew's gospel, we find it in the gospel of Mark. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, it reads, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. That's in Mark 10, 13 through 16.
Jesus's response is translated, he was indignant in verse 14. With those three words, Mark set up a sharp contrast between Jesus's attitude toward the children and the disciples' attitude. The twelve rebuked the people bringing the children and perhaps even irritated with the children themselves. Jesus, however, was indignant about his disciples' response to the children. Instead of going into a detailed Greek word study, I'll simply say that the two words describing the disciples' action and Jesus' response are equally charged. The disciples rebuked and Jesus was indignant. Clearly, Jesus' idea about children's ministry was completely different from what the disciples were thinking. We find people a lot like these disciples even today. People who are not especially interested in bringing children into the kingdom of God. In fact, many of those are the leaders in the very movement Jesus himself founded. To be specific, in my travels around the world and throughout the United States, I've sadly found many church leaders who have absolutely no vision for ministry to boys and girls. After 40 years of ministry, much of it internationally, our EGM ministry team has concluded that about half of the churches around the world in the countries where we serve have no active children's ministry. In far too many churches, working with children is considered mere glorified babysitting. In those churches, people who are committed to working with children are often not supported, they end up frustrated, and often exhausted. Even when there is a children's ministry, it's often fueled by pragmatism. In other words, your church won't grow if you don't have something for the children. In fact, the church growth movement in the United States identified a healthy children's ministry as a key to church growth. So churches too often have a children's ministry only because they need to have something for the children if they want their churches to grow. What seems to be lacking around the world is a genuine vision for ministry to children that's rooted in Christ's absolute and profound love for little boys and girls. Underlying this neglect of children's ministry is the same mentality that bewitched the disciples. Ministry to children is not a priority. We can pray together that God would change the hearts of Christian leaders and give them the same love for children as Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us this week for the Five Smooth Stones podcast. If you like what you hear, feel free to share this podcast with another children's worker in your church or your community. And I look forward to seeing you next week at the same time. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Our next Five Smooth Stones podcast will be this same time next week. To learn more about life-changing children's ministry, check out the EGM Institute website at www.egminstitute.org.